From the studios of the Private Client Network in Midtown Manhattan, welcome to Luxury on Location. This dynamic podcast features conversations with luxury realtor Kevin Snedden, founder of the Private Client Network at Compass and its Private Client Network partners. In this, our eighth episode of Season 2, Kevin will be speaking with Dale Boudiette, our Private Client Network partner in San Francisco. Dale is a top real estate broker in San Francisco, and here's why. With over 30 years of real estate experience and training as an attorney and an MBA, Dale and his wife, Alla, are the dynamic duo of San Francisco real estate. Their collective real estate brokerage expertise is unparalleled. They possess boundless knowledge of all things San Francisco, and they are laser-focused on delivering for their clients. So it's no surprise they are consistently ranked in the top 1% of San Francisco realtors. And in case anyone's counting, the Dale and Alla team have brokered nearly $1 billion in real estate sales, over $132 million in 2021 alone. What we admire most about Dale is his entrepreneurial mindset, his steadiness, and his sterling character. We are so fortunate to have Dale in our private client network, and we are delighted to have him as our featured guest on Luxury on Location. Hey, Dale, welcome to Luxury on Location. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. We're really excited. You're one of the original Private Client Network partners from back in 2019. And we've since grown and really expanded this network. But I remember how you and Alo were so motivated and into it and engaged from day one. And it's the people that came in early that really set the tone and helped us build it to what it is today. So I want to just stop and thank you for that right out of the gate. Thank you. It's been a great experience for us, for sure. So why don't you take our listeners through your overall professional background prior to getting into real estate? Sure. So while I've been selling real estate now for, I'm in my 16th year, I believe. But before that, I practiced law for 11 years. And the last eight of those, I had my own trust and estates law practice. I had founded it and We had three locations in San Francisco and down in Palm Springs and one up in wine country and did really well. And then my wife, Alla, and I, who I work with, we had been investing in San Francisco real estate since the early 90s. And I started getting involved in all these real estate projects that we were doing. And I was like, wow, this is really fun. And as it turns out, we were kind of seemed like a, a step ahead of the realtors we were working with. And first, Alla embarked, you know, she left the corporate world and started selling real estate three years before I joined her. And then I ended up joining her and the rest is history. Yeah, a legal background is a great background, as you know, for real estate brokerage. And you had that combined with being an active real estate investor. So you definitely, I think, had a leg up on Typical agents that maybe don't have a certain background and just get into it from the pure sales aspect of it and don't really have the depth or really understand the transaction at a very deep level. So I could see how you probably hit the ground running. So how was it your first sort of year or two in the industry? What was your approach? Well, it was really interesting because, I mean, for us, our approach has been and continues to be really all about relationship building with our clients and with people in our community. So it was really, really focusing on the people that we know. And we were fortunate enough. I've lived in San Francisco since 1990, and so is Allah. 
and we raised our children in the city. So we have a really large community of friends and we volunteer and we're really active and engaged and involved in the San Francisco community, both the nonprofit community and for-profit and school system and whatnot. So you know, we have a large community of friends and it was really about just connecting with our community and engaging them on what we were doing and how we're doing it. And what's very, I think, typical here and probably a lot of markets in throughout the country is we have a tendency to be very transactional in real estate. And then it makes some sense, right? Because you're working intensely with people for a short duration of time, which is very similar to my estate planning practice. And you start thinking about these things as transactions. There's a start and an end date. And then when it's ended, it's ended. And so we wanted to flip the script a little bit and really engage people well before the transaction and then stay engaged well after the transaction. So that means developing relationships with people. And that also means making sure that you're doing everything in their absolute best interest at all times. And then you just build a following, honestly, and and people start referring us. And so those first couple of years were really just letting people know what we were doing. You know, there's still a learning curve, even though I was a lawyer, I mean, Here in California, there are no attorneys involved. We handle the transactions from soup to nuts. And that includes advising on disclosure items, writing up the contract, which is really filling in a form. So there was a learning curve with respect to disclosures, the do's and don'ts. And of course, I had to be very careful to make sure people understood that while I trained as a lawyer and I'm a member of the California Bar, I'm not practicing law. And that's a tricky one because I know like in New York, that's pretty easy because lawyers are involved. You go, oh, go talk to the lawyer. Here, it's like, well, you know, what do you think, Dale, about the landlord-tenant laws? And it's like, well. Yeah, no, I can see in your market because you just use escrow agents, right? So I could see that your legal background because here in New York, the lawyers handle a lot of that. And I personally like to get involved at a very deep level in the transaction. I like to understand every aspect of it. But a lot of agents can just say, well, let the lawyers handle it. And that pressure is taken off of you and having to understand that level of detail. And, you know, some agents just really push it off. But for you to be able to interject and really help influence a matter where there are lawyers that are not involved, I mean, I could see how that gives you some instant influence. Yeah. And the early years were, for me, the transition from into a real estate practice from a law practice was actually pretty easy. Because like I just alluded to, we did estate planning, which was a very intense period of time working with people. And it was really like from a overall perspective, real estate's about kind of your pipeline, who are your people coming up? Like who's going to be a prospective buyer and seller? is as important as to who you're working with, which is as important as who you used to work with and stay in touch with. So the whole lifespan of a client experience was an easy transition in real estate for me. Yeah, and for our listeners, the consistent themes here with successful realtors are that they understand it's a relationship business, not the transactions are a byproduct of the relationship. And I think the point you made about you're a member of the community and you're out there and you're giving back to the community, one of the things that we have to do up front in establishing a good relationship with a client is we have to build trust. And when people see you out in the community, helping the community, they feel like they know you, they can relate 
to you on a non-business level, and there's a trust sort of byproduct that comes out of that. So the things that you did early on, I could see how people were drawn to your services. Yeah, and it's doing right, as you say, it's, it really is the relationship and it's doing right by people. And we're in the fortunate position now where our clients who've used us are our advocates. They're like telling their friends, stop, you have to call Dale and all just don't even think about calling anybody else. So they're really, we have a lot of really strong advocates, which we're really grateful for. But those are things that you earn through your actions. It's not just, it just doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, because there's nothing more compelling than a client that has developed a relationship with you, has had one or more transactions, have been through that process, and then to tell one of their friends or family members, you must use this realtor, that there's no better, you know, good housekeeping seal to earn. And it all starts with taking care of your clients. If you do that, other business is going to come your way because they're going to go out and they'll be your advocates. And there's no one better to advocate for you than a client that you've done it, done it, deal with. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into the market. We all know what COVID has done to markets all over the country. I think San Fran, it's had a profound (laughs) effect before, during, after, and it would be great if you could take our listeners through the entire market, sort of the COVID impact, how Mm -hmm. it's been through COVID and what's trending in the market now. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's been a a really crazy ride. I mean, looking back on 2022, back 10 years, we had a 10-year bull market in real estate with some very, very minor little blips in that time, which is the longest bull market in San Francisco real estate since they've really been keeping track, which goes back to the 1980s. That has been fueled largely by the growth of the tech sector in the region. I grew up in the area and I used to live in Silicon. I grew up in Silicon Valley. And when I was a kid, the prevailing traffic would go from south up to San Francisco. So on the freeway in the mornings, heading north was jam-packed. Well, starting in the uh, mid-2000s, it was just the opposite. So freeway traffic heading into Silicon Valley from the north was the predominant traffic flow. And so what that means is that a lot of people were moving to San Francisco and wanting to live in an urban lifestyle, including tech people. There are tech buses that perforate throughout the city from the biotech industry, the straightforward tech industry from the Googles to the Facebooks of the world. They all have also footprints in the city itself but their main campuses are down the peninsula in the Silicon Valley. So it made it really easy for people to live here. And really starting after the financial crisis, which was about a flat of two years, in 2011 and 12, the market just started taking off. And we started seeing, you know, year over year appreciation of 10, sometimes 20%. It's just really kind of crazy numbers if you really think about it. And then, you know, we're cruising along and then COVID hits and San Francisco, like New York City, went into a very deep lockdown. And that lasted from March well into from March through July. We could not show a property to a person. You just couldn't show it. So somebody was supposed to buy a property by looking at a video online. So we were literally our iPhone film crew. We were doing walkthroughs for buyers and for sellers so people could see properties and hopefully feel comfortable enough to make offers on places. But it was kind of a grinding standstill. 
And then it opened up slightly. We could, using certain protocols, we can show properties. And then things started moving again. And then something really strange happened in November of 2020. And the backdrop of all of this is that people are stuck in their homes. And all they're doing is thinking about their home, how much they would like this versus that. They want outdoor space because they don't have it now. They need an, a Zoom room because husband is working in the dining room, kids in the bedroom on school Zoom, and the wife's in the other bedroom doing her work. And they're all going crazy. So I call it the great COVID shuffle began in November of 2020, where people are just exploding out of their places. And we were in a very low interest rate environment. And 2021, so starting November 2020, the rockets, you know, were launched. And 2021 was a record year in San Francisco real estate in terms of median price point and all-time record of number of units sold. And was it predominantly people looking to expand their footprint and get more space to be able to do all those things under one roof? I mean, in terms of like what we were seeing, yes. There was, of course, you see in the national media and media, a lot of talk about people exiting these densely populated urban environments. And there was certainly an element of that because the Facebook guy can go to Idaho and live on a ranch and still work. And so there was some of that. But what started happening in 2021 is people were beginning to think about, oh, well, I'm going to have to go back to the office at some point. And then there was this element because we had a slight dip in prices because nothing was happening during full lockdown. And people are like, okay, this is a deal. You got to move now. And so, and so, yeah, people were moving into different spaces. I think for us personally in our business, we helped more people both sell and buy in the same year than we had in memory. Yeah. The shuffle. So that's the shuffle year. Yeah. And that's in the city proper because we do probably 95% of our work in the city of San Francisco itself. So we didn't experience this mass exodus, except for a few of our sellers in certain neighborhoods where their tenants moved out. And they said, okay, my tenant moved out. I don't want to rent anymore. So sell this. And then we'd sell it to somebody who was either renting or moving from a different situation. Interesting. So what's gone on now? Obviously, the extreme 2021 market everywhere has calmed down. And I call it, it's been normalizing, you know, and if you really want to look at 2022, you really have to look at it compared to like 2019 or 2020. If you look at 2022 compared to 2021, it's just down substantially. But if you look at it compared to 2019, it's up substantially. So what are the optics right now? What do people think about the San Francisco market right now? Well, right now, it's extremely slow. We started the year in a very robust market, but that was partly fueled by what I would call interest rate anxiety. Like everybody knew interest rates were going to go up. So the buyers wanted to get in before interest rates went up. So basically from January through June, the first full half of the year, where people like, I'm, I got to get into something now. And they were making things happen. Then interest rates start going up and the market really cooled off with a few exceptions. The condo and co-op market has cooled off radically. And from pricing to number of places sold for no real apparent reason, other than the prevailing attitude as I sit here today in November of 2022 is like, oh, 
that place is nice, but maybe I'll consider this place. There's no urgency among buyers right now because they're already dealing with six and a half percent interest rates, which are double what they were seeing just a year ago. And so it's like, okay, well, if I, you know, if I buy something right now, great. If I don't, then I'll buy it next month. So there's nothing kind of pushing people. The exception is in the single family market where particularly, quite interestingly, kind of in the 2.5 million to 4 million window of single family places, they're still selling, not all of them, but many are still selling to uh, multiple offers. What about the luxury or ultra luxury? A very quiet. Yeah, very, very quiet. In fact, San Francisco is either September, October, has the most listings available for sale, $10 million or higher that they've ever had. Wow. Now, do you think there's an exodus out of San Francisco? Because when we talk to people in other markets like Austin, Texas or Nashville, they're like, everyone's coming from California and they don't really tell us Northern or Southern or whatever. Mm -hmm. But do you feel that there's been a lot of movement? And, you know, these tech companies have opened up hubs in those markets. So if you're at like Google or Apple or Facebook and you're out in the San Fran area, you could literally go to Austin, Texas and work at the same company, right? So what are your thoughts on that? I think there are definitely people moving out of San Francisco and the Bay Area generally, um, particularly affluent people. I do not think it's at the level of what the prevailing media seems to suggest. I think San Francisco itself, the population in San Francisco is about 860,000 people. That's just our city. The the Bay Area is much larger, of course. And we had a net outflow of 22,000 people in 2021. Yeah, so... So it's like, it's. I mean, it's significant on the one hand. The vast majority of the people who had left, though, were renters. Interesting. And, and, And not homeowners. But having said that, I think we can conclude or at least infer from the number of ultra luxury homes available for sale in San Francisco that those people are selling and moving elsewhere. Yeah. So what do you think 2023 is going to look like? I think it's going to continue to be slow. I think what's interesting is that we've had a couple little blips in the 10 year run that we've had. The 2016 election was a flat year. It wasn't a down year. It was a flat year, but it was what I would call it was a skittish market kind of like nobody knew what to do. And I think 2023 is going to be that kind of market where people aren't sure what to make of it. I also, I mean, I I do believe that if we're not regionally already in a recession, we're going to be, you know, the stock market obviously hasn't been great and interest rates are high. That combination and people fearing about their jobs, particularly in the tech sector, which has taken a hit in the stock market and they're laying off people, is going to have an impact in 2023 on real estate at every level. Yeah, I mean, you could argue, right, the tech sector really created the high values of San Francisco real estate, so the tech sector's been getting hammered, (laughs) and you could see the direct impact. Like, it's funny, in the New York area, the Wall Street bonus pool drives the Hampton summer house market, right? And when the Mm -hmm. this year I hear the Wall Street bonus pool is going to be down like 45%, direct impact on Hampton's sales. So I would imagine the San Francisco real estate, at least the luxury end, goes the way of the tech sector. For sure. There is just no 
separating that. It's the cause of the increased valuation over the last 10 years, and it will be the cause of our correction this year and next year. Yeah, interesting. But, you know, as we all know, clients, it's a flight to quality, right? When the markets are in transition and you really need good critical guidance to navigate, you're going you're gonna to go to a broker, a real estate broker that really provides a higher level of guidance. So it's an opportunity for good brokers to take market share. Yeah. I mean, we're looking, we're very much growth minded right now. It's really interesting. And it's like, and we were like that during the financial crisis as well, and which paid off in spades for us. We were just like, okay, we're going to double down and make, make something happen and take market share. And we feel like there's a great opportunity for that to finish this year and through next year. We really are quite bullish on the overall future of our team. And in part, because of what you're saying is like, there's never a shortage of need for what I would call quality services like ours. Yeah, no, and good brokers know in times like this, it spells opportunity. So if you're good at what you do and things are in transition and whatever the state of the market, there's opportunity in every market if you're a good broker. Absolutely. And one of the things we're talking to our buyers right now, we're, we have a few buyers who are just sort of beginning their process and they're move up buyers, which means like, let's say they're going to sell their $3 million home and buy an $8 million home. Well, if the market's down 10%, your $3 million homes lost three hundred dollars in value, but the, the $8 million place has lost $800,000 in value. So it's actually a great time to be a move-up buyer yeah. when you combine those two transactions. No, that's a good point. That's a perfect example of creating opportunity in a down market. Yeah. So why don't we move on and why don't you uh, take our listeners through your team that you run with your wife, Ala, how it's structured, how many team members do you have, how do you run it, how do you differentiate yourself in the marketplace? Sure. Well, last year we were very fortunate to be named in the top five in all of San Francisco out of over 4,000 agents and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of teams. And so we're set up where all and I are the team leads. We have two agents that work for us full-time. We have an operations manager full-time, and we have two part-time people. One's a marketing coordinator, and one is what I'll call a marketing professional. And we also utilize Compass and the services it has to offer as well. To We leverage that quite a bit. So that's kind of how, our, as we talk about, we're a small and mighty team, <laughs> And, and I think that fits in, in the way San Francisco is structured. And I typically am working mostly with our sellers and, and some buyers. Ala is overseeing some of the operational components. Because one of the other things that we do for our sellers using services like Compass Concierge, which we can talk about, but is we help our sellers prep their properties to maximize value. So there's a we have a whole list of vendors that our sellers can choose from, but we typically project coordinate that for them. So they move out, hand us the keys and painters, stagers, handy people, floor people, you name it. We've gone so far as to coordinate the remodel of back kitchens and bathrooms as well, if it made strategic sense to increase the value of a home. So we have a whole wing of what we do associated with what I'll call property prep. And that that's our basic structure. And then we have another agent who she handles a lot of buyers and is, you know, she's been in business for, I think, six years now, all of those six with us. 
and she's beginning to do and, and get some listings as well. And that's great. And we added about a year ago, another agent to the team who is brand new, second career. And so we're bringing him along and he's doing a lot of opening doors, showings for buyers, tours for buyers and things of that nature. Yeah. What's so great about operating a team is you have coverage and the service levels just increase for your clients because you have plenty of people to show. You have plenty of people to take buyers out. You can handle all the transactional paperwork, et cetera, and really just keep that pipeline of the deal flow happening. Yeah. And also like I was with a seller yesterday and she was, well, how do you do this? And I said, well, it depends. I mean, we're, there's no one way to sell a home and there are a lot of strategic decisions that go into it based upon you, the seller's circumstances, the factual circumstances around it, the market conditions. And so having people to do kind of what I call the daily grind allows me to sit back with you, Mrs. Seller, and talk strategy and get into the specifics about what's the best pathway for us to take to sell your place for the maximum value. I don't have to run around and open a door for a painter or organize a buyer tour. I've got people that do that for me. So, and that's all important stuff, but I get to utilize my services and talent and you get to lean on my experience in a more meaningful way. Yeah, I mean, it's clear why teams are so prevalent right now because it is, you just are able to provide a higher level of service and the clients feel it. And you walk in sometimes on a pitch and you've got three people with you and you're, you know, and they just feel like, wow, you're paying a lot of attention to me. And, and I know that you're going to have this covered. And you're, when you're, if someone else, like an individual agent is pitching against you and, you know, the seller is going to look at and say, you know what, I want like, you know, a team of, you know, five or 10 for the price of one. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah. And it, it's funny because we're getting approached by a lot of solo agents right now who want to join our team. And that's one of the things, Kevin, they say, it's like, you know, how in the world can I compete? Because, you know, I have to do everything. <laughs> yeah, no, if you can't beat them, join them. It's really a classic yeah, exactly. example. Yeah, no, exactly. teams are just on the East Coast. We're popular in New York. New York's such a big market, but now everyone I talk to in our network and elsewhere throughout Compass, teams are just the hot ticket right now. Yeah, everybody, and even the people that aren't fully aware feel like, whoa, everybody's talking about teams. Maybe it should be either forming or joining a team. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, and I tell everyone, you know, starting out, you want to get on a team to sort of accelerate your learning curve, you know, your climbing of the learning curve. And absolutely, what could take you five years if you join the right team could take you one. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, and, the, and teams were not prevalent at all when all and I got in, into the business. It just it was very much a solo, you know, um, a, a solo sort of thing. And I think for the solo agents, sometimes they have to understand. But I get it. In our industry, there's a lot of peacocking, right? It's a lot of strutting and look how great I am. And so we think that clients are hiring us for us. And when we're talking about a team structure, you're actually hiring the team. And uh, to allude to what I was talking about before, it allows me to focus more on strategic, meaningful decision making with the client and to our other agent to go open doors and to our operations manager to meet painters and set up other things that need, all need to happen, including photo sessions and getting the basic marketing materials ready and, and things of that nature. 
you know, it, it's, it's that leverage is huge. And when the buyers and sellers understand it, they're like, oh yeah, of course, you know, it's like, this makes total sense. So what Compass tools? I know it's clear that you use Compass Concierge. What other tools or parts of the Compass platform does your team tend to utilize? I mean, we lean heavily in Marketing Center as a baseline tool. We also, you know, Compass has some really great marketing professionals that we've been fortunate enough to work with on things like helping us with branding and other what I would call custom marketing materials over the years, it's been super valuable in that regard. More recently, we have um, <laughs> took a little bit, but we've gone full in on Compass CRM and are using that. And that is a really interesting tool for us. Yeah, the artificial intelligence component of that, the likely to sell. Yeah, and it also, it doesn't work great with teams right now, but they're going to be making some updates that will make it amazing for teams. But one of the things I'm appreciating about it is when I go into my CRM, it's giving me suggestions of things to look at right away, whether it's the, the artificial intelligence of people likely to sell or, hey, here's 25 people that you need to connect with. And and so it's like all sort of fit, you know, it's just right there for me in, in a notification and I can click on that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I need to get a hold of this person. I'm, I haven't followed up with this person in, you know, two weeks or gosh, I need to take this person out for lunch to celebrate, you know, the one year anniversary of them buying their home. So it's a really interesting tool that we're really excited to leverage even further. Yeah. So now, you know, tail end of this interview and in the last segment, we like to delve into the lifestyle of a particular market. So you obviously have lived in San Francisco for a very long time, raised your kids there. You could probably be the mayor of San Francisco if you wanted to, or certainly an ambassador. So why don't you take our listeners through? Why don't you sell us on San Francisco? You know, San Francisco, the first thing I'm going to say to the people who have not been here is don't believe what you hear in the media. Yes, we have homeless people. Yes, there are problems with fentanyl overdoses in San Francisco. Largely, that is contained to one area of the city. It's called the Tenderloin. And it's always been problematic since I've been here in 1990. I just read something like Los Angeles County has a far worse per capita homeless problem than San Francisco. And the number one place in, in the state is our state capital for homeless per capita in Sacramento. So San Francisco offers what I think is a really unique opportunity for people who like urban living and convenience but maybe want to dial it down somewhat from a place like Manhattan. It's almost like a suburban city in that you've got pockets of it that are not super dense. And for example, where we live is very close to Golden Gate Park, which is larger than Central Park in New York. But it's almost like my daily go-to place. And during COVID, in lockdown, it was amazing to see how many San Franciscans were utilizing the park. And in terms of gathering with others, we've got fantastic restaurant scene. 
great arts and music and it's vibrant. The air is clean. If you like surfing, you can go surfing. You're a three-hour drive to snow and skiing, an hour drive to some of the best wines in the world. Um, it really is a very dynamic, wonderful place to live. And I've been, and I'm biased, obviously, I've lived here for a very long time, but I have also traveled all over the world. And every, almost every city or every place I go to, I love it. But then I'm like, I'm so glad I live in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, no, I know, I know what you're talking about. I had uh, one of my brothers lived out there. He lived in Marin, but he lived out there for almost four years. And I visited uh, a lot. And, and it's, it's just an amazing place. It is so scenic. It's so beautiful. Yeah, there's a place like if, if you ever come here, there's and, and you enjoy like, you know, I'm going to use the air quotes of hikes, but let's call it a long walk. There's a place called Land's End, which is in the northwest corner of, of the city itself. And you can start your little walk um, and you'll see the Pacific Ocean. And then you go through um, cypress and redwood trees on a path. And it's an urban sort of path. And next thing you know, you don't see any buildings at all. And you sort of wrap around the city and you're seeing over the Marin headlands and, um, you know, just gorgeous vistas all the way out to Point Reyes on a clear day. You see the bay starting to develop and you walk over and you see smack. You're on the west side looking towards the Golden Gate Bridge in this just iconic view. No buildings anywhere. I mean, you can almost like pinch yourself and say, am I in, actually in a city? And there are all kinds of opportunities like that throughout the, you know, the, the city itself, um, which is, which is pretty cool, um, to have that. And then of course, you know, restaurants abound here. And, um, I think they're the last time I, I looked at the stat, we had more restaurants per capita than any other major city in America. Well, and then you have Ghirardelli, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Fisherman's Wharf for the tourists. <laughs> but it's funny. It's like Ala, who's been here for a long time, I think uh, five years ago was the first time she ever went to Alcatraz Island because we had a friend in town who who wanted to go. And Ala, we took our kids who had never been also. Um, so sometimes it's fun to be a tourist in your own town. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so for, on, in closing here, you know, there's a lot of like real estate agents that listen to this podcast and, you know, uh, younger agents that are just getting into this. Everyone aspires to sell luxury. You know, everyone wants to every year raise their average price point and really sell that big ticket real estate. Um, so what would you say to someone about an approach? Like what's the best way to go about if you really want to establish yourself in the luxury end of the market? Well, I think you have to you have to start with a baseline of experience because you've got to be in a position to build trust with with the client. They're going to want to see some sort of track record, unless it's a close personal friend, of course, and maybe they'll trust you because of that. You have to know the inventory. That's very important. So we have Tuesdays as our broker tour day. So, you know, understanding the inventory, understanding how the market works and, and then, you know, being in a position to, you know, meet and pitch um, these people. That's probably the hardest part for, for many people, you know, wanting to break into that ultra uh, luxury situation. You also, I think, have to understand that 
unlike other types of real estate, you may not be talking to the actual principal. You could be talking to their uh, pers personal manager. I've done that. I've, I've had one conversation with, with the, the actual owner and countless conversations with his personal manager and his home manager, the person who manages his home, his attorneys, his family office. So you'll be dealing with a lot of different types of people. And you have to understand that I think communication among the various groups, when you have a sophisticated, very wealthy person, they are very busy doing lots of other things, need the information. And sometimes they might ask their family office person what's happening with their listing. And if you're not updating every single segment of those people, you could get an angry phone call from somebody. Yeah. And you have to understand, and talking about building trust, you have to build trust with everyone's people, right? Yep. And you yep. have to treat them with respect and understand that a lot of these people run the principal's lives. <laughs> and, yes. you, and right. And you have to, you have to, you're talking to one of their people. It's as good as talking to that principal and, and people that get into this high end arena early on don't really recognize that. And they'll learn the hard way. Yeah, no, it's, it's really true. It's just like I have a team and, and my, you know, clients could be talking to or interacting with any any one of my team members, the same is true when you're dealing with the high net worth people. They have teams that are helping them personally and, of course, in their professional lives as well. But you're typically on their personal side. And so you're going to be dealing with a multiple number yeah, of people. That's great. That's really and it's good advice. And uh, I want to thank you, Dale, so much for joining us today. It's a really interesting conversation. And, you know, for our listeners, Dale and Ala in San Francisco, they're partners in the private client network at Compass. So please look them up if you're thinking about buying or selling real estate in San Francisco. Great. Thanks, Kevin. A sincere thank you to Dale Boudiette for being our featured guest on our eighth episode of the second season of Luxury on Location. That was a terrific conversation, which we sincerely hope our listeners enjoyed. And thanks to our listeners for joining us today. We understand there are a multitude of podcasts out there, so we appreciate you chose Luxury on Location for your listening pleasure. We hope to see you back for our next episode when Kevin Snedden will be speaking with another one of our private client network partners and discussing their luxury market. In the meantime, please check out the private client network at Compass, your nationwide resource for luxury real estate. We operate in virtually every luxury real estate market in the country. You can find us at theprivateclientnetwork.com or on Instagram at privateclientnetwork. Until next time.